1: Hello, good friends. Happy New Year, and welcome to this first podcast of 2023. We start off with a bang, a blockbuster report released by our good friend Hunter Walker, investigative reporter for Talking Points Memo, whom you also know as a regular guest on our Bill Press Pod Reporters Roundtable. While digging into the work of the January 6th Special Committee, Hunter obtained a trove of never-before-revealed texts between former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and Republican members of Congress, all focused on keeping Donald Trump in the Oval Office. As Hunter reports, it's clear from those over 2,000 texts that at least 34 members of Congress, with full support and cooperation from the White House, were actively plotting for weeks on how to overturn the 2020 election, efforts that led directly to the violent assault on the Capitol on January 6th. One thing for sure, publication of the Mark Meadows text gives added weight to the committee's final report, which refers Donald Trump to the Justice Department on four criminal charges and calls for blocking him from ever holding public office again. So, joining us today to kick off a new year of the Bill Press Pod, the man who broke the story of the Mark Meadows text, Hunter Walker. Hunter Walker, Happy New Year and welcome to the Bill Press Pod. Welcome back, I should say.
0: <laughs> happy New Year to you, Bill. Always good to be here.
1: So, Hunter, you made a lot of news here while I was out of town over the Mark Meadows texts. Tell us, first of all, how'd you get your hands on them
0: and uh, what do they show? So, these are the text messages that Mark Meadows provided to the select committee that was Uh investigating the January 6th attack. Um, And, you know, I need to preface any conversation um, about these texts by pointing out that, you know, they are not necessarily a complete record of what was in uh, Mm. former Trump White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows' phone. Um, They are what he and his legal team provided to the committee. Uh Um, So the short answer to how I got him is he he turned them over. Um, I then obtained them and verified them from multiple sources. Um, You know, one of the central mysteries of the whole thing is why Mark Meadows actually turned over these messages. Um, And I don't really have an answer to that. He he did not respond to any request to comment on the series of stories we did about these messages over at Talking Points Memo. he was briefly cooperating with the committee about a year ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he stopped, as you'll recall, they actually, oh, yeah. you know, referred him for criminal contempt charges. Um, so this brief window of cooperation from Mark Meadows yielded these messages, which investigators then dubbed the crown jewels, because they just showed so much about the various plots to overturn the 2020 election. Um, but it's really a mystery. Um, you know why he turned them over, and it'll have to remain a little bit of a mystery how I got them. We don't, <laughs> wanna, we, we don't yeah. discuss our sources and methods beyond saying uh, no, we had uh, multiple sources on this. We are very certain that these were the genuine article.
1: Well, I understand, but I mean, there's such a pile of them. You know, you you talk about 364 messages he received from over at least 34 members of Congress and 95 messages that he sent to them. I mean, this was an an active back and forth with leaders of Congress, Republicans in Congress, to overturn the election, right?
0: Well, you know, a couple specifications there. Um, first off, there were twenty three hundred and nineteen messages total. Wow! Um, again, this is a partial record. We oh, we yeah. we see multiple indications in the conversations that you know. Uh, there's context that was missing, including discussions that mm. seemed to begin and end sort of abruptly. We also see, um, notably with Congressman Scott Perry from Pennsylvania, moments where Meadows talks about switching to encrypted apps. Um, so we mm. don't have any window into those conversations. Um, and then also, you know, it was, I believe, 34 members of Congress um, whose messages we highlighted. And these were just the ones who texted with Mark Meadows about plans to overturn the election. Um, So, so those numbers you cited are just explicitly, you know, conversations with members who are talking to him about the various plots to overturn the election. Um, And, you know, I think one of the reasons that was one of the first stories we did in this TPM series was, you know, that is, you know, 15 ish percent of the total trove. Um, Clearly, you know, one of the biggest things going on here was Meadows coordinating with members about these efforts. And I should also say that, you know, the messages he turned over to the committee simply date from. November 3rd, 2020, election day, through January 20th, 2021, uh, the day Biden took office. Um, so, you know, God knows how long these conversations were going for, but in that distinct period, we see two things. Um, one, that this strategizing with members of Congress and others to overturn the election began, you know while the polls were still open, you know, on uh, election yeah. day itself, at least. Um, and Whoa. it continued well after January 6th. I mean, notably, one of the messages that that we highlighted that's gotten a lot of attention um, is one from Ralph Norman, a South Carolina congressman. Um, and he was calling for martial law, which he misspelled, um, three days before <laughs> yeah. Biden took office on January 17th. You know, so you see that kind of even after the violence at the Capitol and even after the backlash. There was still plotting going on.
1: Yeah. And they were talking about, as you say, martial law about um, states appointing phony slates of electors. Uh, I mean, almost anything they could think of, right, to keep Trump in
0: office. Well, you know, since we published these stories last month on Talking Points Memo, um, the committee has been out with their own final report, which is, I think, like 845 pages long. Um, And, you know, one of the things that makes January 6th, and, and I use that as a catch-all term. Um, such a hard thing to talk about is there was such a multifaceted, multi-pronged effort to overturn the 2020 election. Mm-hmm. You saw these legal challenges in various courts all over the country, you saw the violence at the Capitol. You saw, you know, Trump's effort to install Jeffrey Clark at the Justice Department, which Scott Perry was involved in. Um, you saw, you know, Phil Waldron, this sort of ex-military guy who worked closely with Michael Flynn and was apparently communicating directly with Mark Meadows. You know, he was one of these people advocating using this executive order um, about foreign election interference to potentially mm-hmm. allow martial law. So, you know, there was they sort of. I think the best way to sum it up, you know, is again to use that catch-all term, the January 6th plot, and and to recognize that that wasn't just one thing. It was essentially a large group of people who threw everything at the wall and hoped something stuck.
1: And at the very center of it, right? I mean, was Mark Meadows. He was he he for me, for me, right? He appears as the ringleader of this entire effort. At least people saw him that way, didn't didn't they?
0: I mean, he was very clearly a central planning hub. Um, And, you know, that's that's always, as you know, Bill, we've talked a lot and I I covered um, the entirety of the Trump administration as a White House correspondent. And the traditional role of the chief of staff is sort of to be that hub. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Meadows was just sort of like, A deranged, bizarro world version of a chief of staff, in that, you know, normally we think of the chief of staff as a gatekeeper who's keeping the craziest stuff away from the president. And in Meadows' case, as much as we do see, you know, there are moments in these text messages where he, um, you know, talks about being dubious of the dominion theory which was one of the wilder conspiracy theories even as he was open to others um he was clearly it, it almost seems like he was involved in the effort to oust Sidney powell um who was a member of the trump legal team but as much as there were these sort of moderating moments from mark meadows he also very clearly you know was coordinating elements of the plot you know to the point that he you know brought various wild allegations to the doj uh he describes doing that in these messages um you know he helped coordinate speakers for the january 6th rally on the ellipse Mm -hmm. even while being aware that you know members of trump's own own team had you know concerns that some of the partners were too fringe there so he really really was a central figure but one point that i do think has been lost in all this you know i I know we're going to dig into this a bit but i also wrote um the book, The Breach, I co-wrote this with um, Denver Riggleman, who was one of the former staffers on the select committee, um, and Denver, who's also a former congressman – I mean there's yeah. <laughs> a lot going on here but, – but he um, he helped lead the phone team. Um, and the book, you know, has the backstory of how they obtained these text messages, but it also delves into some of the other telephone evidence that they got. And when you really look at the broader context of the link maps that were built by Denver and the J six committee phone team, it becomes clear that really the central figure was Donald Trump himself,
1: uh-huh. because yeah.
0: all of these communications. All of these links, you know, some of the craziest stuff happened in Oval Office meetings with figures like Powell, who was even too wild for Meadows. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I would I would say that Meadows was a key hub, but ultimately, quite literally, when we talk about the link maps of conspirators, all the lines went right up to President Trump himself.
1: Looking at the text uh, that Meadows received from members of Congress, the ones that you cited, Uh, There are two takeaways for me. One was that there were lots of allegations of voter fraud, but damn little evidence, (laughs) number one. Number two, uh, even though Mark Mark Meadows may not have taken all of them seriously, these members of Congress were were into really batshit crazy conspiracy theories, right, about Italy's role in this and China's role and, of course, George Soros, right? Uh, and as you mentioned, Dominion, I mean, they were, it's a lot of nutty stuff.
0: Well, that was one reason that I was so, you know, hell bent on publishing um, as many of these messages uh, as were noteworthy. Um, and it's one reason, you know, TPM really dedicated an extraordinary amount of effort to this series i think we did over a dozen stories we had five Mm. reporters working on it um the whole tech and design team made sure that you could see some of these messages you know as they appeared in your phone um and part of the reason that was as they would have appeared in your phone um and part of the reason that was so important to us is you know along with all these new details that the text showed about sort of who and 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 was involved in each element of this wild plot. And, you know, when various uh, stages of the planning happened to me, one of the most notable things is that they showed like a scary lack of information, literacy, and frankly intelligence from our nation's oh. elected re- representatives. No, I mean, I'm not kidding. Yeah. I mean, you know, when oh, you talk about yeah. the Italy gate theory, you know, um, that was one that was really popular with Scott Perry. But but the one that really sticks out to me, I mean, forget not knowing how to spell martial law. You know, we all <laughs> dash off text really quickly. But I think, you know, the, the, the best examples, two things um, that stand out to me from these text conversations, you know, that make me concerned about the acuity of some of these individuals are one, you know, Rick Allen. Um, And he's this Georgia congressman who was all over the messages. Um, And at one point, you know, he was promising to connect Meadows with a quote unquote source um, who had information about, you know, an alleged conspiracy to manipulate the votes that he traced back to Romania. Um, (laughs) And, and at one point he shared, he shared, you know, his supposed, you know, proof of this scheme. And first it was an article from, 2005, about a driver's license data breach. So, you know, he's essentially arguing that, you know, 17 years later, this this relatively small data breach in one state, you know, had yielded enough actionable information mm-hmm. to um, sway the election, which is absurd. But believe it or not, it got weirder from there. He also shared with Mark Meadows this 17-minute you know, wild conspiracy theory video from some Romanian, you know, anti-vaccine activist um, who was sitting there with a guy who claimed to be an ex-Romanian military operative. And they were basically without, even in this video, you know, without even pretending to wave paper at the screen or anything, they were essentially just by their own Mm. word claiming that there had been this massive plot that involved like, ukrainian mules sneaking into the country and somehow casting 50 million votes and 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 rick allen seemed to buy into this and so what's so crazy about that is like first off you know foreign sources are are so easily influencing an elected official simply by throwing crap out on youtube He's not recognizing that 50 million people is like one sixth of the country. How could you know? Even if theoretically there was some organized plot with Ukrainians to sneak into the country um, and cast votes for people, how would that happen 50 million yeah. times with no notice? I mean, like these claims are laughable on this on their face, and he's buying into it, and he has no you know critical no apparent critical you know evaluation of the sources he's taking and and he's not the only one we saw paul mm-hmm. gosar the arizona congressman yeah. he's literally passing along links to a website called some bitch told me and this mm-hmm. is where he's getting his intelligence this is where he's getting his information so you know it really raises alarming questions about their intelligence their judgment but also how easy it is in the internet era to run an influence campaign that hits our elected representatives who apparently, you know, we'll just buy whatever they're watching wholesale no matter who it's coming from including foreign sources i mean i'm still yeah. creeped out by what i saw in these messages
1: but you also mentioned i mean there are those those nutty members of congress but there there are some that well at least have positions of leadership deserved or not i mean ted cruz was involved in this in these texts jim jordan right mo brooks um now,
0: not only were they involved, but, you know, those three guys you named in, per- in in particular, along with a few other folks like Jody Heiss, were cited as, you know, leading efforts mm. to overturn the election. I mean, in, in, in you know, one of these moments where, you know, one of the stories we did highlighted how Georgia was a focal point of, you know, the Trump plotters as they sought to overturn the election. Um, and you know, in one messages, uh, in one message, I think it was Jason Miller, but one of the Trump campaign people talks about how, you know, they wanted Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, the former senators of Georgia, um, to get on board with they, what they called the quote unquote cruise effort. Um, and Trump, you know, wasn't going to mm-hmm. be willing to help them, um, unless in their own election, um, unless they were doing that. Um, and you know, That message seems to make clear that, you know, quote, unquote, the Cruz effort, Senator Ted Cruz's objection was, you know, central to, you know, one of the plots which involved, you know, objecting to the election results on the House on the Capitol floor.
1: Right. Okay. so related to your reporting on uh, on the Mark Meadows text, uh, you and uh, Denver Regelman, former congressman, as you mentioned, Mm -hmm. uh, wrote this book about January 6th, The Breach. Uh, the untold story of the investigation uh, into January 6th. What did you find that was was new or that maybe we hadn't heard before behind uh, the work of this committee?
0: So, you know, the book came out in late September, um, you know, so there was a lot (laughs) that was new at the time that the book came out, um, you know, that has since been reported. Um, But, you know, I think the main thing, you know, that the book – gets into that I really haven't seen discussed, you know, almost anywhere else, um, is, you know, how the committee investigation came together, um, including moments where its scope and aggressiveness was limited by politics. I mean, that is a behind the scenes story we really haven't heard much discussion of. Um, And then again, as I was saying before, you know, Denver writes about how the phone team came together and how they acquired their information, including the texts. Um, and most importantly, I think the biggest untold story in this book is again, the larger body of telephonic evidence, um, that the committee collected, um, because it's really a lot of the stuff, you know, separate and apart from these text messages, um, that I wish had been more a part of the conversation and that I wish had been followed up on more, Um, including, you know, people like top members of the Oath Keepers and Proud Boys um, who seem to have communications with, um, in the case of the Oath Keepers, directly with the White House, um, the Trump White House, um, you know, with, you know, key figures in the former president's orbit. You know, I think the phone information um, that we describe in that book um, that really hasn't been a part of the public committee investigation, starts to, in a concrete way, get at links between the political and military operation um, that we're working together to overturn the election.
1: One of the promises that Kevin McCarthy has made, were he ever to become speaker, right?
0: <laughs> <Which> <laughs> open is, question, right? As which of as of now, we as speak
1: of- is still uh, is still an open question as yeah. we speak. Um, is is, one of his promises, they're going to investigate the investigators, right? They're going to investigate the January 6th committee. Is this one of the things that they're getting at, which is uh, how their phone records became part of the committee's record or the text even?
0: Yeah. So we talk about, you know, in this book, and again, you know, uh, the Republicans have telegraphed this so much that, you know, we were able to talk about it months ago. Um, this idea of a quote-unquote investigation of the investigation, you know, was very much on the minds of um, the committee as they did their work. Uh Um, And, you know, I think you're already starting to see, you know, people sort of uh, highlight their transcripts and try to, you know – Raise questions about how the evidence was obtained and you know nitpick it and 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 what have you um you know one thing that i really kind of wonder as much as we saw mccarthy and a few others kind of get subpoenaed by the committee as we saw a few criminal referrals um you know for people who totally defied those subpoenas you know we didn't really see the committee take on members of Congress. The role of these members of Congress was not really a big part of the public conversation, to the point Mm -hmm. that, you know, these texts came out on Talking Points Memo, not, you know, in a committee hearing. Um, And, you know, I kind of wonder about that. It seems like they, you know, stayed far away from members of Congress, um, relatively, and that it still hasn't stopped you know, the Republicans from retaliating right. and dismissing the whole thing as partisan.
1: Yeah, all they did was refer some of them to the House Ethics Committee for an investigation, right? We know where that's going, right?
0: <laughs> I mean, especially with the changeover now.
1: <laughs> yeah. So what happens to Mark Meadows? Uh, I, I, I try to find out, of course, the, the committee recommended or uh, referred uh, Donald Trump to the Justice Department for four criminal, on four criminal charges. They also referred John Eastman I don't believe they referred Mark Meadows. Am I correct?
0: I think they did when it came to contempt for defying uh-huh. the subpoena. Okay. Um, yeah. But you know, he he basically fought that in court. Um, he fought the subpoena in court, and and you know, the legal battle over that is ongoing to the point that it's now clearly extended into the new Congress. I mean, you know, when it comes to Mark Meadows, when it comes to Trump, when it comes to Eastman, you know, you're getting at the million-dollar question. Through my work, through the book we did, through certainly the committee's work, which you know really uncovered a lot of the information I've talked about, um, you know, and far beyond, we have a sense of what the DOJ already has and what mm-hmm. they could get if they really want to dig into this. The million-dollar question that has hung over all of this for a long time now is: How aggressive will the DOJ be? Um, in touching some avenues that perhaps even the committee didn't. And how aggressive they will they be when it comes to taking on, you know, political actors, including, you know, all the way up to a former president. And right. I, I don't purport to have the answer, but that is clearly the next chapter of this story.
1: Uh, and as we speak, Hunter, there is breaking news uh, from the former police chief, former head of the Capitol Police Department, uh, about security and the lack of uh, action prior to January 6th. I want to ask you about that in just a second. But let's take a quick break and then uh, uh, take a breath. <laughs> take a couple of minutes. We'll be right back after we uh, say hello to one of our sponsors and continue our conversation with Hunter Walker, investigative reporter for Talking Points Memo. today's podcast with hunter walker brought to you by the laborers international union of north america our good friends at the laborers union otherwise known as liuna l-i-u-n-a and led by president terry o'sullivan over half a million strong good men and women active in three particular areas in construction yeah they're already rebuilding america's infrastructure and getting lots of new members to do so uh in the energy field building those old-fashioned pipelines and uh, newfangled, if you will, solar panels and wind turbines, also involved in the healthcare care uh, profession, uh, nurses and doctors all around the country. So we salute the members of the Laborers Union, thank them for their great work building America, thank them for their support of the Bill Press pot. What makes a
0: life a good one? Is it the adventure you have?
1: Today, uh, our good friend, uh, a regular member of our Bill Press uh, reporters roundtable on Friday, but uh, his main job, investigative reporter for Talking Points Memo, and author of the new book uh, "The Breach: The Untold Story," author, I should say, with Denver Regelman, co-author of "The Breach: The Untold Story" of the investigation into January sixth. So, Hunter, the now a uh, former head of the Capitol Police Department, says that they goofed, they failed. The Capitol Police failed, the FBI failed, Department of Homeland Security, the Secret Service, that they all had intelligence, that there could be some trouble, real serious trouble on January 6th, but they didn't do anything about it. <laughs> Pretty shocking, right? Yeah, mean, huh?
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, it—it it, as as I think we've talked about before, my my coverage of January 6th really began the day of, um, you know, when I was on the ground at the Capitol. Um You know reporting live um and it was apparent to anyone who was there that day um that there was a massive failure on the part of law enforcement i mean you know people always ask me were you surprised with how violent it got and it's like no um you know i was wearing a helmet like like you know (laughs) there had been weeks of violence in dc um months arguably um there was all sorts of online chatter um And then separate and apart from that, when the fighting did break out at the Capitol, you know, there was clearly hours of delays um, in getting the National Guard in and even delays in getting the D.C. police in. Um, So, yeah, there were definitely failures. Um, We did delve into this a bit um, in the breach, um, as it was, you know, part of the committee's mandate to investigate that. And they have done so. Um, and, you know, Russell Honore, the, the former general, everybody will remember from um, Hurricane Katrina, also put together a report um, on some of the failures. And, you know, there's a lot to digest there. I think one of the reason it hasn't been necessarily a bigger part of the conversation is that there's no easy or convenient political narrative about, you know, what went wrong and how um there clearly wasn't enough action on intelligence from the capitol police um dc the metropolitan police and mayor muriel bowser you know in part influenced by uh 2020 where we saw you know months of protests in cities all around the country civil rights protests i um, in a mm-hmm. very heavy-handed federal response from the national guard and sort of unmarked agencies sent in by the the trump administration uh muriel bowser had in the days ahead of january sixth, actually said please do not send in the national guard Mm. Um, so that's Mm. part of what went wrong here at the same time you know when it became apparent they needed to get sent in president trump clearly didn't do anything as the committee has documented in great detail um but others had the authority to do so and the pentagon didn't get the guard in there quick enough meanwhile you know who has oversight um, of the Capitol Police, well, the House and Senate Sergeant at Arms, which in the old Congress, um, you know, was overseen by Republicans and Democrats, both Pelosi and, and McConnell mm-hmm. had a leadership role there. So it was messy. I think you know my overall takeaway is that you know DC, and I say this as a former resident, DC is hampered by you know the hodgepodge, just the amount of agencies that are responsible. Right um, for, for situations in the Capitol. I mean, the MPD doesn't even have permission to go up into the Capitol complex without coordination, right? The National Guard is not overseen by the mayor or the, go- you know, the mayor who essentially is the governor, uh, as far as DC is concerned, it's overseen by the White House. That's not normal for anywhere else. So I think, you know, DC long-term probably needs, I mean, first off, statehood for a million reasons. (laughs) Thank Um, you. um, Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. But that would get to a more streamlined law enforcement response. Um, And then also, I mean, this was a big um, conclusion from the Honoré group. The Capitol Police needs more resources in general and more resources focused on intelligence.
1: Yeah. Uh, Just a quick point on that. Were uh, the district a state, actually? Uh, that uh, Mayor Bowser could have called out the National Guard herself, right, even though she may have been reluctant beforehand to do so, without having to go to the Pentagon. She didn't have that authority, uh, being just the mayor of the district. By the way, I I haven't had a chance to see uh, Chief Sun's book. I'm sure you haven't either. Um, But what struck me in the news reports I've read about it is that while the Pentagon did delay for three hours sending in the National Guard, um, they sent... (laughs) They did send military police right away to protect the homes of military commanders around the district, right? Uh, yeah, yeah,
0: and 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 again, <laughs> taking you care know, of their
1: own, ignoring Congress.
0: Yeah, I I I do judge Bowser sort of harshly um, for some of the mistakes that happened here, but you know, it, it's important really to remember that backdrop because as much as I covered January sixth, I also covered the months of George Floyd protests in D.C. You know, and and there was a lot of violence in the city, um, and a lot of that came on the part of you know the law enforcement who responded, including I mean people forget this story, but the Trump administration was so heavy-handed that not only did they send in the National Guard to deal with the Black Lives Matter protesters, but they sent in people from the park police, the Bureau <laughs> of Prisons, the DEA. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the full alphabet soup of federal agencies was on the ground. Um, and I referred to them on as unmarked. I mean, members of Congress have raised concerns about this because they actually were like obscuring their uniforms and badges you know when they were in the street um essentially brawling with people so you know i i do think that you know bowser's reluctance to have the guard involved was a problem but that was the backdrop and sort of as you're pointing out both when it came to the civil rights protests and when it came to january 6th D.C.'s government would have had more control over the response if it was a normal Mm -hmm. state government. Right. Now,
1: uh, Hunter, I can't let you go without asking you about the story that has um, just Uh, absolutely uh, (laughs) captivated all of us uh, during this holiday season, the talented Mr. Santos. I mean, you've been been reporting on George Santos and diving in, uh, in addition to everybody else, the New York Post, New York Times first, New York Post, the the Washington Post. Did you find anything, anything that George Santos said that was true about his family or himself or his financial career? You know,
0: I was about to say to you, I was about to say to you that, you know, while claiming other ethnicities, he said he's Brazilian, which does seem to be true. But that's not even really (laughs) correct, because like one of the stories I did for TPM highlighted this old interview where you know santos a bragged about his role at a company that was later outed as you know an alleged pyramid scheme um he also claimed to work at jp morgan which is just adding another company that he you know <laughs> was not demonstrably associated with to the list and in that interview you know while sort of restating the narrative that his family were somehow like Holocaust era refugees from Europe. He referred to himself as a quote unquote honorary Brazilian. So I can't even say that like (laughs) he's properly said anything about where he's from or what he's done in his life. It it is just a staggering, staggeringly bizarre story. Well, you, you,
1: (laughs) you must be amused by, um, the problem that Republicans are having, starting with Kevin McCarthy, in responding to this, right? I mean, like they they never called Donald Trump out on any of his lies, <laughs> and now they've got little George Santos coming along. Or I think with less dangerous lies, perhaps, but still, uh, after Donald Trump, probably the biggest liar in the Republican Party. Uh, what are they going to do about it? He, he will he- be he will be a member of Congress, correct?
0: As of now, yes. And I think, you know, part of the problem for Republicans is that they have this narrow House majority now this year. Um, and they won that majority in New York. Yeah. Um, and they yeah. won that majority, particularly on Long Island, where, you know, Santos was mm-hmm. one of the the new Republicans who got seats and. Um, and so, you know, as much as he is an embarrassment, he is vital for their new majority. At the same time, I mean, here in New York, um, you know, I moved back up here and I've, I've covered New York politics for a long time. Democrats are also under a lot of pressure over this because, you know, Sean Patrick Maloney, um, the upstate congressman who was the former DTRIP chair, um, and Jay Jacobs, the the state party chair, you know, have both faced a lot of heat for how Democrats lost ground in one of the bluest states in the country amid an otherwise historic blue wave. And Jay Jacobs, you know, this pretty uh, wonky insider in New York stuff, but he's a Long Island guy. That's supposed to be his backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, he seems to have not, you know, just totally dropped the ball here. Um, you know, yeah, the New York Times did vault this into the spotlight, but the local paper out there was actually covering this, you know, and raising questions about this guy. And somehow New York Democrats and their apparatus, you know, didn't amplify that, didn't catch on to it. Um, I was looking at the D-trip, you know, briefing on George Santos, um, and it literally said next to huge chunks of his resume, quote unquote, unknown, and no one over there where it's their job to do research, you know, double check that or saw it as a problem. So as much as, you know, the national media dropped the ball here, so did New York's Democrats and so did the National Party.
1: Was there any – now you, you – you, I read your article about some of the business dealings he had, uh, you know, associated with some pretty shady companies uh, to say the least, right? Was there any illegal activity? you think do you see any sign of that or
0: what what i will say to you right now on january 2nd bill is this i am personally continuing to look at george santos
1: okay okay
0: good that's where we'll leave it let's leave it there (laughs)
1: yeah okay well well let us know what you find out
0: to talking points memo for more george (laughs) santos coverage
1: Uh, and by the way, I might add, you're not the only one who's continuing to look into him, right? Because there's still a, a lot of questions. I mean, the one point that you raised in the last article I read of yours is that one year he's got like, an annual income of $55,000. And the next year, he's got an annual income of, I don't know, millions, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. So so this surge in income that, by the way, he seems to have used to donate money to his own campaign. So it was kind of, you know, pivotal in his win. I mean, he, he unsuccessfully ran in 2020. Now, all of a sudden, he's got a lot more money. He pours it into his own campaign. It is all tied to this, you know, mysterious company, the Devolder Organization, um, which he described as his family firm. But, you know, i really dug into it at tpm and none of the paperwork shows anyone from his family it in fact only shows executives from this firm harbor city where he did work Whereas, as i've uh, reported, he he bragged about being the quote-unquote head guy for New York City, and according to an SEC complaint, Harbor City was a total Ponzi scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this unsavory cast of characters all over the paperwork, you know, for George Santos Santos's company um, that seems pivotal to his run. And then, even more interestingly, there are links and ties between that business. And some of these former Harbor City executives and other Republican congressional campaigns. So, yeah, I think this story, I, I, I think my hunch, we'll say it that way, my hunch is that it goes beyond George Santos and that it will get even bigger.
1: And, of course, he, uh, Mr. Santos did tell the New York Post when he was asked about this by uh, their reporter, quote, unquote, I am not a criminal. Echoing uh, Richard Nixon, right? I'm not a club. At least, I mean, hey, look,
0: look do, do, do not sully the name of Richard Milhouse Nixon, because honestly, like compared to George Santos, like Nixon was the most honest man in American history. Um, you know, Santos's level of lying, as we were saying. I mean, I think he he said his mother died from 911. Then he said his mother yeah, died right. another way. He said he was yeah. Jewish. He he, you know, said he escaped the Holocaust. He said he beat brain cancer. He you know has an eighty million dollar family company. I mean like like the level of shifting narrative and lies that have come from this guy is is like nothing else I am aware of in American history.
1: But Hunter, if they were not lies, they were, again quoting George Santos, quote, just a poor choice of words. <laughs> Oh, uh, you're right. It would take uh, George Santos to make Richard Nixon look good, right? Okay, Yeah, got
0: this is, he's certainly at a high degree of let's, let's do a Bush-era throwback. There's a lot of truthiness, a lot of truthiness yeah. for
1: George. Uh, well, great work on your part, uh, Mr. Walker, here uh, telling the truth for uh, Talking Points Memo and here for the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for your good work. Thanks for your time. By the way, we will have a link to this uh, the episode notes in, to this podcast for our uh, listeners all around the country to get a copy of your book with Denver Riegelman, The Breach, the Untold Story of the Investigation into January 6th. Thanks, Hunter. Happy New Year.
0: Thanks, Bill. Happy New Year to you.
1: And that's it for today's podcast with Hunter Walker. Again, his book that he wrote with uh, former Congressman Denver Riegelman is called The Breach, The Untold Story of the Investigation into January 6th. There'll be a link for you to purchase that book on the episode notes of today's podcast. Now, this is a big, big week, this first week of January in the nation's capital. We may or may not have a new speaker of the House. We don't know who it's going to be. That's a lot to talk about. Plus, Joe Biden coming back from uh, his uh, holiday vacation. Does he come back with a decision about whether or not he's going to run for re-election in 2024. Will we know it by the end of the week? All that and a lot more we'll get into with our Reporters Roundtable, as always, on this Friday. So have a good week, folks. Once again, Happy New Year. and Make 2023 a great year. And come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.